Hello, and welcome to the High Reliability Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Martin, president of Gosling Martin Associates. The High Reliability Podcast is sponsored by The Career Hub. And before we get into our podcast today with our guest, Jason Tate, I wanted to briefly mention a couple of different items that we are working on here at Gosling Martin Associates, um, getting ready to roll them out in 2022, early 2022. It's weird to say 2022. That doesn't seem possible. But um, on the recruiting front, we're going to be rolling out a, a new concept. We're going to call it the partnered search. Um, and that's going to focus on recruiting issues and programs. And then relative to careers and individuals, we're going to be excited to augment our career hub services. We'll be providing much more information uh, on both of these initiatives uh, throughout the end of this year or into early 2022. But we're rolling out these initiatives because, as you probably know, if you're listening to this, and Jason, I'm sure you would agree as well, the healthcare facilities market is rapidly changing. <laughs> and many of the old ways of doing business, both in our consulting world and in Jason's world of healthcare facilities management, the old ways of doing business are going bye-bye. And so in, in many ways, if you're working in the field or if you're me and Jack on the consulting side, you really need to change how you operate. I believe now more than ever um, that strong relationships are required. And I think that's something that we do well here at Gosselin Martin Associates. And that's the direction we're taking our programs. I think we have strong relationships now with organization and individuals, but I think given the challenges that are coming, those relationships need to be solidified. I know that one of the, one of the things that I often hear from candidates that I'm working with, whether we are representing a client or you know, candidates who will call me or I talk to a lot of people who are looking for jobs and they'll always call and say, hey, Pete, what do you think? This and that. But I know one of the things that I hear from candidates a lot is that they get contacted from HR, from a hospital, and then things go dry for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, or they'll get feed. They'll never get feedback. And I think that that's not a criticism. That's just the way the world is these days. Um, and so that's why we are looking for in our programs to solidify relationships, make things move easier, simpler. I know that, you know, if you're out recruiting, candidates are assessing you just as you are assessing them. And so if you don't, in a perceived way, if they're not treated with respect, then they're going to move on. So anyways, sorry for the diatribe. Let's get back to Jason. So with all that said, let's welcome Jason Tate to the podcast. Jason is the Director of Plan Operations at Mountain View Regional Medical Center in Las Cruces, New Mexico. You may recall Jason was on our education podcast that we, uh, we did back, I think, in May. So Jason's worked in healthcare facilities management for many years now. He's taken on progressive leadership positions for more than six years. Prior to getting his start in the healthcare trades, Jason worked in the trades as a journeyman HVAC technician. It's a very interesting career path. Jason has his associate's degree in the arts. He was previously pursuing a BA in philosophy, but after taking a two-year hiatus or break from school, he's returning to the University of Arizona to complete a Bachelor of Science in Sustainable Built Environment. Jason has a CHFM. He's a certified energy manager, and he also served in the United States Air Force. So a very interesting career path, Jason. Welcome to the High Reliability Podcast again. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's a pleasure being here, and I consider it an honor to be um, asked to be a guest. Well, thank you. I, I, I appreciate that. And one of the things, you know, 
with Jason, we first met, I don't know if it was 2015, 2016, out at the ASHI annual. Jack and I were doing a, a seminar class, and Jason was a participant in it. And at the time, um, you know, any of you who have, have done classes before as, a, as an instructor, I know that you always have different perceptions of the folks who are sitting in front of you. And Jason and I struck up a conversation. We've kind of kept it going for five or six years. And Jason has always struck me as somebody, obviously, you know, coming out of the trades, got the technical background, but also has great soft skills. And I know that relationships are important, you know, to Jason. And that's something that he values in his role as director of healthcare facility manager, Jason, relative to relationships, and I was just talking about it a little bit, and I've been talking for far too long now, but um, <laughs> relative to relationships and and your role um, in healthcare facilities management as a director, how do you look at relationships in, H in HCFM healthcare facilities management, and how important are effective relationships to you? I, I think uh, communications in general and, and how they impact relationships um, more specifically it is kind of the linchpin of our work. I, I don't, I'm, I'm a older, I'm on the older side of the millennial kind of, kind of block of people. And I, I know that's important for us. And I say that just as a qualifier that I, I don't know what this looks like for previous generations, only what I've heard, you know, kind of generational experts speak about. But I'm seeing more and more people who are in this kind of same age range as me come into leadership positions at director levels and above have a CEO at this point who's who's at the top of the the millennial um, age range or you know low Gen Xer um, kind of solidifies and models these same types of of um, expectations for honesty. I think we you know our generation is is known to be the most advertised to generation ever. So um, we, we can spot a sales pitch um, from a mile away. We can, <laughs> we can spot, uh, you know, uh, just a phony attempt at trying to gain our trust. And, and, and I, and honestly, I don't know that that's really such just a millennial thing. I think maybe people had had more of, of a tolerance for it than, than our generation tends to. Um, I I have a hard time with those types of things. I I, I really um, genuinely appreciate honest um, honest communications with people, being upfront as much as you possibly can be, and and really trying to solidify um, the those those communications um, between people. I think people depend on us in facilities management so much. And they assume so many things about what we do or what we don't do. And, you know, you know how it's, it's a, you know, an age old diatribe, right? That every, you know, if they don't know where to put it, they just kind of throw it at us. It's either us or EVS. Like who does that? I don't know. <laughs> call EVS or call, call maintenance. Um, so it's our job as leaders to, to be educators to those um, people that are our peers, that are directors in the clinical setting, in um, the support service settings, um, and we're also called to to be translators to the C-suite as well, to manage up, to promote 
um, and, and make visible our teams and show the good work that we do. I'm reminded of this constantly when we do our safety huddles every day and they ask for an opportunity for us to give kudos to people. And I always struggle because I hear nurses being, you know, giving kudos for something. I'm like, that sounds just like their job, you know? And, and I feel the same way. I was like, maybe I should bring that up about one of my guys. Like, nah, he's just doing his job, but it, it's our responsibility to continue to, to put them in the, in the spotlight because if we don't, they won't ever be seen. So I, that's a long answer to, um, to, this, to, to your question. But I think if relationships weren't center um, stage in previous generations, I don't know why they wouldn't be. Um, I, I don't know that that's necessarily true. But if they weren't, it seems obviously they are now. We, we have to develop solid, long-lasting relationships. Um, not only with the people within our organization, I think the last people that I'd mention is, is our vendor partners. I, I try to be very clear and honest with those people. We depend on them in facilities management, right? That, that, that pipe fitting contractor who comes in when you've got a busted pipe and you don't have the manpower to take care of it on your own. If, if I sour that relationship just because I decided to get salty with them or I didn't like the way they did something or I think they priced gouged me or whatever, if I approached that the wrong way, I burned that bridge. And in, in many regions, like the region I'm in, in southern New Mexico, we don't have a large talent pool to pull from, either for internal staff or outsourced contractors. So if you've spent the, the social capital to develop those relationships and you've, and you've gone through the blood, sweat, and tears of, of trying to get those people to understand what their work does to impact your operations if they do something wrong from an infection control standpoint or utility outage or whatever, right? If, if we've gone through kind of the, the lumps and the, and the hard knocks of working through those pain points, it doesn't make any sense to burn that, to burn that bridge down. Um, so mm -hmm. maintaining and uh, not only maintaining, but also cultivating those relationships to make sure that they flourish is, is absolutely vital to us continuing to provide value to the organizations that we serve. Great answer. You know, you, you, you said you were giving a long answer to that question, but I think because it's multidimensional, right? I mean, it's, it's one word, relationships, but that it encompasses so many different areas. And you said a lot in there to, to chew on. One of the things I want to go back to, um, you know, you mentioned that you're at the top end of the millennial scale relative to, to age. One of the things, um, you know, that I hear, and you're right. I mean, you know, you got the baby boomers, many whom are retiring. We all know this. Um, and then you have the younger generation coming up and you're kind of in that middle. Do you think that um, given the challenges that you're facing today in healthcare facilities management, and I apologize, I, I don't mean this to be an unfair question at all. Do you think the balance between creating the relationships and being sympathetic to the employee versus getting the job done, which as you said, you're so central to patient care, patient experience, that hospital, if that hospital doesn't run, it's on you. How do you achieve kind of that balance, Jason, where, you know, everybody wants to feel included and you want to feel valued and that's all very important, but you also have a job to do and that's taking care of those patients who come through your door. How do you balance that? And do you think there's an appropriate balance between those two, which can at times be competing priorities? Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting question. It's something I almost feel like I need to mull over a bit more, but, but at first blush, 
um, it, it is it is a pain point, right? I, I don't know that that many people in generations before me were really worried about. Gosh, I really hope this guy right. isn't upset that I'm not granting him this PTO on oh, this time I, because I've already got three other guys out or whatever. Yeah. Right? Um, we there there seems to be more of an emphasis on let's not hurt people's feelings, mm-hmm. um, and I and I and I struggle with that to be honest. My 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 communication style can tend to be more blunt, and and I. And direct, and I and I work very hard to try to cultivate that and and to co- cultivate empathy. I think where we can, I, I think the the realities that we're seeing today of of burnout and of organizations taking advantage of people and and their their sense of calling or vocation is legitimate. And we we need to be on guard for that as leaders. Um, I always tell my team the whole reason I exist is to help you do your jobs. Hmm period. And if that means, you know, if I see that they're under, under significant strain or stress and it's clear, it's clear that they're going through that. And, and I turn away from that and I, and I pretend like I don't see it for the sake of the mission more than likely, as far as I'm concerned, I'm probably going to do more harm than good. Hmm. They're going to make a mistake. They're going to hurt themselves. They're going to take down a critical piece of equipment, right? Something bad is going to happen because they are clearly under duress, whether they've got kid issues or aging parent issues or sick spouses, or they don't have anybody to take care of their childcare because of the pandemic, right? All these things, it's like, man, these things are highly inconvenient. And, and, um, I I wish I could figure it out, but, but the reality is, you know, we roll with the punches. We try to have part of our, our role as, as, facility management leaders is to make sure that we have contingencies in place, right? Um, if I'm if I'm at the point where I have to have this one single person here or else this thing isn't going to get done and I have no other alternatives to shoot for, I'm, I've failed somewhere is the way that I look at that, right? I need to have someone else that knows how to do that maintenance. Generators is a perfect one. I, I don't like the idea of having one person who, who understands um, generator testing and inspections. And that's the only person in the organization. And I actually went through that process when I got here. The guy's been doing it for 20 years. No one else understood it. One, no one actually thought he did any work because no one really knew what he did. And two, he felt like he, like when you watched him navigate his PTO, he, he was always organizing it around those specific Tuesdays that he always does these tests. And when I asked him to cross-train someone else in it, there was an anxiety induced in him at that point where he was like, well, well, what's wrong? What am I doing wrong? And I was fairly new as a leader here. So I think, you know, new leaders, there's those anxieties get developed when someone comes in and starts shaking things up. And I sat him down and I said, look, when's the last time you didn't have to worry about when you scheduled PTO? And he's like, and he's been here the entire time this hospital has been open. And, and he's like, never, never. I've always, I've always never. I said, yeah. And I said, I said, well, isn't that a shame, right? Like, shouldn't you be able to not worry about, whether or not we're going to get this thing done and, and handle your business and your family. And that was kind of like an aha moment for him. I said, also, look, mm-hmm. you have this wealth of information. I know that you don't feel like you're a good teacher, but this is going to give you the opportunity to, to, to actually hone your skills even more, because if you can teach it, you can, you can walk away knowing that you know what you're doing here. And he came back to me a couple weeks later, just energized by that, mm-hmm. just, completely stoked that he had this opportunity to teach someone else that this person's asking really good questions that they're getting it and that they're, they're comfortable with it. And, and there's a tension there, right? I don't, I don't need to just rip it away from him, but, but the fact that I have a redundancy in place for that 
um, if anything ever happens to him, is absolutely vital. So, so um, again, I, I think it's a major part of our job as leaders to make uh, um, to make sure that we have those types of contingencies in place. If I didn't have another tech to do it, do I have a contractor that I can call in on emergency to do to work on whatever whatever it is we're talking about? Those things um, they are vitally important. As far as the decision making processes. Um, I tend to try to be more democratic. I've, I've realized I've, I've come in from a military background and growing up in a military family. When I first became a leader at my last hospital as a manager of like, this is what we're going to do. And this is how we're going to do it. And I just beat my head against a brick wall trying to execute that change. And it ended up in so much more strain for me. It, it, it just, it embroiled the organization in a deeper culture clash and toxicity that that nobody needed right everyone was going home with anxiety not just me and coming to work with anxiety and i in my instinct at that time was to double down right to, to to start wielding a very big stick and and it it didn't help anything it doesn't help anything and i had to go and you know talking about relationships ask those people for forgiveness and i think as leaders we should be able to do that mm. if we can't we don't believe we, we shouldn't be leaders um, and I don't mean saying, I'm sorry. I mean, like looking someone dead in the eyes and saying, I messed up, please forgive me. Huh. Um, um, and that's not an easy thing to do. It, no. that, that's a stick to, to the pride. But um, as I've moved into this role here, I was fortunate to walk into a very good team culture. And I was very sensitive to the fact that I did not want to be the person who ruined that. And then um, I, I wanted to, to actually make it even better than it already was. So as long as it's not something absolutely critical, right? Um, if it's something where we're, we're at the end of our ropes and this piece of equipment is down and we're impacting operations, we're having to move or cancel surgeries, things like that, right? I'm going to make a call and I'm going to let them know what they need to do. And the expectation is that it gets done. And mm -hmm. I hope that I've spent enough time in developing relationships with my people that they understand why I'm doing that. When it comes to more democratic things, like we've got a backlog of corrective maintenances, we're not staffed the way we would like to be or where we think we should be. Um, how do we address that backlog? I open up the conversation democratically. Like, let's have a conversation about this. How do you all want to attack this backlog? And I give suggestions. I play talking about my philosophy background. I play devil's advocate. I, I look for pros and cons on, on any, on, uh, not just my idea, um, but their ideas as well. And I throw them at them and I say, okay, make a decision, right? We're not, we're not going to leave this room until we make a decision. We make a decision and okay, everyone agrees. Yes. Does anyone want to say their piece before we close this out? Here's your opportunity to say this is a stupid idea. And if you don't, then let's try it. We try it for a while. And if it works great, if it doesn't, we, we adjust fire. And I think that's also just, you know, talking about um, high reliability, right? Being a highly reliable organization means being able to do those types of things. Mm -hmm. um, and, and if you let them make those decisions, it's not just about, it's not a, it's not a terse utilitarian um, manipulation, right? I don't see it as that. It's just a reality that people are going to be more likely to, to jump on, on board with something that they feel they actually had a, a say it. And I'm not, I'm not tricking them. Like here, these are their options. You pick my idea. If you like it, great. I'm not going to be upset if you don't. Um, if you, if you don't, then let's go with yours and see how it goes. I was going to ask you that Jason, how, when you kind of turn the tables using your philosophy background, just to ask questions and to bring them into the process, I guess, 
how do your teams respond when you're new? And then how does that process change over time? You know, do, are they initially skeptical? Hey, why is this guy asking us? <laughs> and do they grow to accept and then really engage and, and enjoy that process? How does that evolve over time, that type of a style where you're asking questions of them and soliciting their input and direction? Yeah, I think at first it's it's viewed skeptically, right? Mm. I mean, but the guys that were in the chair before me uh, were older guard, and I don't think that was their style. I don't I don't know that it's it's a normal thing to see. So it's viewed with skeptically. And again, I, I do have a technical background as well, so I'd be asking, I'd be looking at things in the plans, or I'd be looking mm -hmm. at things like, why are you doing that, right? And not not doing it in an accusatory way, but like sure. explain to me. Maybe maybe I didn't. Maybe you know my, I recognize that I'm young. And my exposure to some of these things may, maybe I missed something, maybe I don't know. So, hey, why do you do that? Some guys look at that as, as suspect, right? Like, why is this guy giving me the third degree? Why is he asking me all these questions? And as much as you try to diffuse that, sometimes it just doesn't go away. When I, and I think it's also compounded when, when you have somebody like myself who's a younger leader um, with, a, with a mixed team of people who were either around my same age, a little bit younger, but a lot of guys who are older than me. And some of them who even applied for the job and didn't get it. Mm. Um, that that made for some, uh, especially when I come in and start asking questions, that made for some some difficult um, conversations and some tensions that that I'll admit I don't think I handled the best way. Right, I let things sit for too long, um, tried to tried to avoid conflict, and it made things worse. Um, ultimately, um, those people left and. I'm not going to lie and say that I'm not glad that they didn't leave. Right. Like I'm kind of glad, I'm kind of glad that they decided to go, um, right, you know, and, right. and all the power to them if they, you know, they found better opportunities and they just didn't want to deal with me. And I, I, I take those things seriously. I asked for, I asked for their exit interviews and HR is like, man, you, you, you take this stuff personally. And I, said, I don't know if it's personally, but I want to know where I messed up. I want to see what they see. Um, so anyway, back to your question on like, like it, how do people take that? I think they're really highly concerned when people come in the door and they start asking questions about why do you do this and how do you do that? And what times are you executing these types of things? But, um, I've been here for two years now. Uh, I, I lead every meeting that I start with, with my team with, um, here's the opportunity right after our safety huddle, safety catch moment, right? Is, is this is the opportunity for you all to to say your to speak your mind with positive intent, right? Like if you want to lambast me just because you don't like me on any given day, then that's not what this is for, mm -hmm. and that's not appropriate toward anybody. But if you have something that you you don't like the way that I said something, you think I handled something um, wrongly, you think I made some bad decisions, this is the opportunity publicly to to you know to have this conversation in front of the whole team, and and I've. And I, I've had to actually practice that once or twice. It's not often that people take me up on that, right? Because most of the time people are a little nervous. Like, uh, I don't really, really, it sounds like a trap, right? Like, I don't really, really want to go there with this guy. But I've had, you know, I've had some, some, some bolder employees be like, well, why in the world are you doing this, right? Like, yeah. and, and their tone wasn't the greatest, right? And caught me off guard with, with the way that they approached the conversation. And my immediate gut response was be like, Whoa, man! Right? <laughs> like, like, what are you talking to? Me? Like, like you need to first off tone it down. But you know, I had to, you know, breathe for three seconds and like, that's actually a very good question. Yeah. Um, I've contradicted myself in my, between my actions and what I've said. And um, thank you, 
thank you for bringing that up. And I, I'm going to have to think about it. Like, I don't know how that happened. Made a mistake, overlooked it, what, what have you. But let me evaluate it and then let's circle back around and have a conversation about it. And it had to do with I was trying to diversify some of these tasks like I talked about, like make sure there's multiple touch points on certain types of inspections so they don't fall through the cracks or they're not they're being done, you know, wrongly. Right. They're being they need to be done the right way. And this guy's like, I thought you were trying to do that. And yet, why do I always end up with these same PMs every month? <laughs> I was like, you know, yeah. well, yeah, you caught me there. So yeah. um, I, I've had to eat crow in some of those situations. But I, and I so I think, though, although it's never a one big thing, right, that's right. going to gain their trust. It's it's those, yeah. those thousands of little things and opportunities for you to prove yourself to be a hypocrite or to be sincere. And yes. they'll see and they'll notice. And, and you will tell, you will be able, and if you have any self-awareness whatsoever, you'll be able to tell very quickly when that paradigm has shifted, you've lost the trust of your people. And once that's happened, you've got a long road to hoe to get it back. That's right. Yeah. It's easy to lose. It's hard to gain. Yeah. You, you've always come across to me as, um, you know, somebody who, who, um, enjoys those growth opportunities that you've just been talking about. I mean, you know, from talk, you know, from challenging, you are, um, you know, your, your engineer or the gentleman testing the generators to be a, become a teacher to getting that feedback from the folks who left, where did I go wrong? You've always struck me, you enjoy those opportunities to grow and to learn. Have you always been that way? Or did that happen over time? I, I don't know. You probably have to ask my mom. I don't know. Right. Like I don't <laughs> ask my parents. I, yeah. I, my, my self-awareness as a young man was not there. Um, I, I was a very angry young man and I don't think I was very willing to learn and we can maybe talk about that later. Or we may not, but, um, uh, I don't think I was, there was a pivot point for me when I um, was 22 years old and I'll just say it. Um, hopefully it doesn't burn your audience, um, your listenership down to the ground, but, but, um, I was going through some pretty, pretty chaotic kind of existential crises and, and worldview crises. And, and ultimately, um, I became a Christian and for people who knew me before would know that that was a very, would have been a very weird thing for me to ever consider. In fact, mm -hmm. it would have been the exact opposite. And that's that to me, what I believe mean, um, affects how I live. And, mm -hmm. and that, that ultimately did, I, I want to continue to grow because of, of what I believe in, what I believe yeah. to be true. And that's impacted things for me. Um, I don't know that I've become, you know, I, I do believe that something dramatically shifted in my, hmm. in my mind, in the way that I approach the world, the way that I look at the world. And I don't necessarily look at that as some, some crazy miraculous thing. I just, I really do believe ideas have consequences. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I also attribute to some degree, I've always been curious, but I have an amazing wife uh, and, and it really was for me when I got married, I was a single dad when I got married. Um, and we've had two little ones together, but it, it was getting married that really made me start thinking about what do I want to do in my life and, and how do, how can I take care of them? How can I do better by them? And that, I think that spurred me on more than I even realized, um, as well. It's, it's driven me to, to be the best that I can be because I want to set an example for my children. Sure. Yeah, they, kids change everything. Um, so were you, were you in the air force prior to that or did it tell me about your not, you know, kind of that career path when, you know, once you were that age and you're like, you know what, I want to, I want to get a career. I want to set an example. Were you in the air force at that point or did you go to the no, trade? What, what was that process? 
Yeah, I was already out. So um, I joined the Air Force right before my 18th birthday, got my grandparents to sign the paperwork for me. Um, so let me, so let me join. And I was, I was being shipped off to basic on my birthday, my 18th oh, wow. birthday, um, did, uh, did excellently, um, through, through all of my training time and ended up at all air force base in, in Alamogordo, New Mexico. That's how I ended up in New Mexico. Okay. Um, that was my one and only duty station. I, I like I said before, I was a troubled and angry young man, um, had, had a lot of just family troubles that I wasn't equipped to really work through. And, um, at the end of the day, um, I, I was struggling through some things that I didn't have the tool set to work through. And at the time the air force really just wasn't, I don't know if it's changed and it's not belittling the organization. It's just a recognition of, I don't think that the tools were really there. I ended up trying to take my own life, um, just due to some circumstances and, um, um, and, and did some inpatient stay stints, um, was assessed and all that. And at the tail end of that, the Air Force, their basic approach, right, they're a mission-driven organization. They've got to meet the mission. So the question centers around, can you complete your mission, right? Are you taking your meds? Are you planning on hurting yourself this week? Things like that. And it felt very cold, very utilitarian. Mm-hmm. And, and I was not in a place to be able to work through that very well. And at the end of the day, I had a, a, a great commander who was like, look, we're never going to let you deploy. We're never going to let you um, go TDY. You're never going to handle a firearm, which I wasn't in a, in a field where I necessarily would be doing that during normal duties. But um, um, he, they said, you're just not going to be able to do any of these things. And after your first enlistment, we're, going to, um, we're not going to let you re-enlist. And at that time, and this was, I was like 19 years old at this time. So I was, I was a little over a year in the Air Force. And I, I said, sir, I joined for a career. And if this is going nowhere, can I get out and not hmm. waste another five years of my life or you know four years yeah. of my life doing this? Um, if it's not going to go anywhere. And looking back on that, like I probably could have put in the work and gotten some of those things handled and, and reversed and been able to make a career of it. But um, they were just going through one of those cycles at the time where they were just letting people go for no reason. Right. And so they gave me an honorable, an honorable discharge under medical conditions. And, um, uh, I'm, I'm very grateful for the opportunity. All of my technical training was through the air force. I mean, they spent a lot of money to train me just to let me go like that. So I have, while I, I have regrets about some, just about the way some things are done within the, the armed forces, I'm glad that I did it. I'm, I, I, I struggle with calling myself a veteran because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, because I don't feel like I really did what, what I was called to do, but I got my technical training there. I got out, tried to find jobs locally, you know, as coming out of the air force, like anyone who's coming out of the military knows like they, they it's like, thank you so much for your service. We're going to escort you to the gate and buy. <laughs> and after you, and I can't even imagine doing it after 20 years when you've been told what to eat, how to sleep what to wear, where to be, right? Every waking moment of your day for 20 plus years. After a year and a half, I was like, what in the world do I do with myself? So it just <laughs> dropped me like a bad habit, right? right? And now I gotta go find what to do. So I had a hard time finding a job. And because of all of these things and me feeling sorry for myself and me being an angry young man, I got in some trouble. Um, I got arrested and um, went to jail for a little bit of time, was, um, was asked to not was forcibly asked, I guess would be the way to put it by, by the judge to, to go to a rehab program. So I did. Um, and then my lawyer, after coming out of that, um, 
basically was like, you need a job. What in the heck can you do? Wow. And I said, this is what my training is. This is, this is what I, I know I can do. Like, well, here's a plumbing company that has an HVAC branch. Here's the owner's name. Go down there right now and talk to him. Tell him I sent you. We sit on a couple boards together and he'll probably give you a job. Wow. And, um, so that's what I did. And they gave me a job and I started out like literally doing like residential installs and, and, and residential HVAC service calls. Um, just running with foul mouthed, you know, salt to the earth <laughs> technicians just lambasting me left and right for being being a, a newbie and being yeah. a moron and um and i did that I, I went on to work for um and just progressively learned that trade went on to work for other um contractors who specialized in commercial refrigeration i got through that whole law issue did a long probation stint thankfully didn't ever have to do any more jail time um, got done with all of that. Don't have anything on my record, thankfully, um, because of those things. But yeah. but those things shook me. But I was still I was still a knucklehead. I was still doing foolish things in my off time. But professionally, always really just continuing to try to get better and grow. Um, got my journeyman license. Moved to Los Angeles. Did commercial refrigeration out in LA for multiple years. And then it was there where I felt like I was living the American dream. And I felt like making a ton of money for, for somebody who had no college education. Right. And, um, and was living the, the, the young man party life in, in LA when I went through that existential crisis that I mentioned, wow. it wasn't, it wasn't until I went through that process a couple years later that I decided to move back to New Mexico to raise my oldest son. Um, I, I, I'm very much concerned about the plight of, of fatherlessness in our, mm -hmm. in our culture and in our, and, and primarily for my own son, I went through that myself and I feel like a lot of my issues stem from some of those things. So I wanted to be there for him. And, and so I, I gave up the career I was pursuing there to come back to New Mexico, raise him and, and ended up working for a small contractor for a while um, until the opportunity came for me to come into to healthcare. Healthcare, I didn't want anything to do with. I had a guy, I was doing service for the hospital, service HVAC work, and a manager there kept trying to get me to come and apply because they lost their HVAC guy and they were trying to figure things out. And I kept, you know, my, my perception of facilities was, you know, you're jack of all trades and unplugging toilets and changing locks. And yeah. like, I'm, a, I'm a refrigeration journeyman, right? <laughs> I'm a boiler operator. I don't want anything to do with any of that. Um, I'm not, I don't want to denigrate myself by becoming a facilities guy. It's a very horrible attitude to have. <laughs> attitude that I had. And, um, you know, it's funny how things in the world change. I, I was fairly newly married and the affordable healthcare app kicked out and, and the, um, my contractor that I worked for, um, got rid of our, couldn't afford to pay for our health insurance anymore. And so I was in a place where I was like, well, what in the world am I going to do? And this guy was still asking me about it. And I decided, well, you know what? I know, I know this hospital's got a pretty decent healthcare package, so um, I guess I'll I'll give that a swing. I actually took a pay cut to come to the hospital, um, hoping that it would be a career advancement opportunity, and it's and, and and I just fell in love with it, and it's proven to be exactly that. Wow. So it was the, probably wow. one of the best things I ever made. Boy, that's amazing. I mean, what a <laughs> what a story of 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 redemption and, and, and moving forward, you know, I had, uh, you know, my older brother, my oldest brother, you know, he took his life many years ago now. And, uh, that was 19, I'm so sorry. So, 
No, no. And I don't bring it up for that. I just, you know, when I hear folks like you, it just always, it always hits me. And I've always, you know, whatever you can do to help people through that, you know, and it's so good to hear that story on your end, because I'm sure, you know, there's people who hear this. I mean, you know what that's like, right? And I yeah. think of, you know, I only experienced it with my brother trying to help him through and, and uh, you know, the the pain that folks suffer to get to that point is horrific. And, and I always, like I said, I always think back, you know, uh, you know, that was 20 years ago, 21 years ago now, like, what would it be like now? You just need to get through those moments. Right. And Pat, and I don't mean you just need yeah. to, get through. you just need to push through. But, no, but, that's, what it, through but that's what it feels like. Yeah. yeah. You're, you're hanging by your fingernails and, and hoping that someone comes yeah. around and throws a lifeline. Yeah. I, I remember, you know, we were, and then we could move up, but I remember one of the times I was talking to him and he experienced it twice. But I remember one of the times, you know, he's lying on the couch and I was like, what is it? You know, what do you see? And he's like, you know, I feel like I'm at the bottom of a black hole and you look up and you can't see anything. And that's always stuck with me. You know, that visual of being at the bottom of a hole and looking up and seeing nothing but, you know, nothing but darkness. Cause I'm, you know, fortunately, I'm, uh, I haven't, had that experience and I feel very fortunate about, but I always remember him telling me that, you know, Pete, it's like, you're looking up and there's nothing above and there's yeah. no way out. And I've always just prayed for folks that somehow to be able to push through that and get to the other side. So yeah, I can, hmm, I, I, I appreciate that. You know, it's funny listening to you. It, it kind of puts into all those experiences that you take, right? All of those journeys you take, it's who you are, you know, it creates, who you are now. And now I can kind of see some of that yeah. philosophy background. Did you, and I know you're, you know, you've switched over, you know, you were pursuing your BA and now you've, you know, you've moved on to sustainable built environment, which is so important for, you know, your profession. But did, did those past experiences, did that influence your path into philosophy? Is that why you went that route? Yeah, it, it absolutely did. Um, and before, before I go into this, I want to say on the piggy, piggybacking on what you said just a moment ago, that hopelessness, I think that's why I've tried to take the, the position that I take with the people around me. And that, and I thank you for the opportunity to share this. It's one of those things where I've been thinking about doing it for a while because it's not something that you hear people. It's not something most people want to share. And to be quite honest, it's something that I was kind of afraid of even mentioning because it's like, who knows who's going to listen to this. And when I try right. to go for a career advancement, you know, a few years right. down the road, yeah. <laughs> they're going to remember me as that guy that, that you know, was in jail and rehab and everything else. And uh, I'm going to pass on that one. Um, uh, and, and shame on them right. because there's not any of us who haven't made mistakes, you know? Yeah, um. yeah. But at the same time, yeah, it's like, yeah, but we're, we're all about risk management, right? So um, anyway, um, you know, um, yeah, that I want. We're, we're here to help people, right? And you never know what people are going through. And so right. to try to empathize right. with them and to try to, I'm thankful that I've been where I've been and that I've, and I'm so thankful that I came out the other side of it because I know many people unfortunately yeah. don't. And so if I can be of assistance to anybody, whether it's anyone on my team or anyone I come in contact with, I hope that I have the, the awareness enough to, to catch onto those things and the selflessness in the moment to stop what I'm doing, regardless of whatever I feel is more important to try to help. So just to put that out there, thank you yeah. for the opportunity to share it. And hopefully if anyone listens to this, it's, it's, a, it's an encouragement to them that, that when things might feel like there's no hope whatsoever, yeah. sometimes it does just take hanging on for a little bit longer. Um, yeah, and I'll, I'll right. get off my soapbox there. Well, um, no, and then, just to follow up, and what's interesting, you know, 
you know, you saying that is, and, um, you know, for many years, you know, following my brother's suicide, you know, it's one of those things where, uh, it's kind of, um, you, you don't talk about it. And it's funny over the last couple of years and, you know, Tommy left some children who are now grown and, a, and a wife and all. And, and I almost feel in, in ways like he encourages me to mention it. Like I feel because as you just said, there are so many people dealing with this. And if you can just reach a person to help them, you know, to help them along. And again, I didn't go that route, but I dealt with it from a family member. And I know, so if I can help people and as you, you know, some, you can help people. If it's just one person, it's worth it, you know? And if we keep it in, that doesn't help anybody. And so I almost feel like from him, he encouraged me, you know, Pete, I'm okay. You know, I'm okay. Mm-hmm. If you can help, help. So, yeah. you know, that's the way I look at it. I don't know if it's right or wrong, but it's the way I dealt with it. Yeah, it, it definitely, the more we, you can speak up about it, the more other people feel like their problems are, are not. So they're, they're, they're not so unique to them and that there may be an opportunity for them to reach out to people. So yeah, absolutely. yeah. it's, it's a, it's a sad and, and it's a tough thing. It is. It's tragic. Yeah, no. Um, so, but yeah, as far as the philosophy and all that goes, that's when I was still doing HVAC before I came to the hospital. And honestly, I was like, you know what, I'm going to be doing graduate and, and postgraduate work in, in this. I, I am a firm believer, like I mentioned before, that ideas have consequences and, and I've always kind of dabbled in these types of things. Um, somebody introduced me to Nietzsche as a very, very young person, probably way younger than I ever should have been to be reading that type of stuff. And most of it probably was just over my head, right? And I think also just some of these things are, are imbibed in, in, in pop culture too. Um, and I, I lived that. I, I Again, I believe that if I believe something, for whatever reason, it's in my DNA to be like, I'm going to figure out how to play this thing out so that I am the most authentic, most consistent person ever. But with some of those ideas, they they lead they they lead to suicide. I mean, there's you take some of those those concepts from Nietzsche that are that are worked out by by um, the French existentialists and things like that. And I'm getting way off topic for a facility management <laughs> podcast here. But you take some of those things, and you have someone like I think it was Albert Camus who said, you know, the only intellectually honest question that you sh- should ask yourself is whether you should take your own life. Mm. That's wow. depressing, right? But that, yeah. I mean. <laughs> Yeah, and I, you know, maybe people have never heard of Albert Camus, but I think most people have at least heard that name mentioned. Probably sure. never read it, and even if you picked up his book, probably wouldn't be able to understand most of it. I certainly don't. Um, but but to have something that dark thrown out there, we don't need people that are in those types of situations. Don't need to be encouraged, right? Right. Um, right. In those moments, so right. I, yeah, ideas have consequences. After I became a Christian, I still believed that, and I believed it actually even more so. And I wanted to understand as much as I could about philosophy, about other worldviews, about other religions. And um, really, with the mindset, I, I was toying with like whether I was going to do pastoral ministry at some point. I really don't like the didn't like the idea of that, and I still am not really intrigued by that, but I was really looking at trying to do something that helped people think through these types of things, because I think they're, I don't think everyone's sitting around thinking about these weird existential questions um, at a young age, but I think there is at least a decent number of people who are and who have those itches that need to be scratched and terse answers don't help them. They need, they need some, someone to come alongside and be like, you know what, you're right. Um, Those are legitimate questions. And maybe I don't think I've got it all pinned down, but here are, some different ways that those things have been approached. And here's what I think is the right, the right, the right way. Um, 
you know, that's, that's, I, that's arguably, I know very stereotypically evangelical Christian of me at this point, but, um, and you can love me or hate me for it, but, um, <laughs> that was, that was really just my heart there. Um, after I got into healthcare, like I said, though, when I was kind of pursuing that, I realized there, there's this whole field, like slowly, but surely this, this thing that I thought was, I ah, had just a job to help me kind of get through school, get through seminary and get through PhD work. Like one, it is massive. There is so much here and there's so much to learn. And two, I fell in love with it. And mm-hmm. I really became convinced that like, for now, this is my vocation. This is my calling. And, um, so, and, and the more and more I continued to do philosophy while working, you know, 50 plus hour weeks, it was becoming very difficult for me to get into primary source work and do papers without yeah. feeling like I was falling <laughs> apart. And I actually, you know, consistently came to the conclusion that so much of this is, you know, navel gazing that's gone on for 4,000 plus years and we've not ended up anywhere new. So <laughs> I wanted to focus on doing something a bit more productive and you know, no, no um, disrespect to anyone who wants to do philosophy full time. No. Right. It was. Right. Um, yeah, it was. I realized it was. I, I'm. I'm happy to be an armchair philosopher. And <laughs> you can give your opinion on things, and you still get a paycheck. <laughs> right. So, you. Know, you had talked about um, on LinkedIn. Uh, I had seen you had you had written on there um, a post, and it said, "I just talked with my. I just talked about this with my plan ops and biomed team today." We discussed healthy conflict management and how to criticize with positive intent as a means to foster innovation, trust, and collaboration. I learned this by reading No Rules Rules by Reed Hastings and Aaron Meyer. What is, how do you, um, how do you do that? How do you criticize with positive intent and how is that taken by staff and tell me about criticizing with positive intent. Yeah. And I'll, I guess I'll start out by saying, I don't, that's not the exact language they use in the book. I think criticism okay. is, is, has such a negative connotation to it that that was yeah. probably the word, the, the wrong term to use it, even in that post that I use. Cause most people kind of like, that seems like a, it, but I, but in some ways I wanted to be contradictory. I wanted to kind of like get people thinking like that sounds like a contradiction in terms. Right. Um, but it, but it but, does. I mean, the word choice makes you, it's, ah, that's interesting. What does he mean? And that's what you want to be, right? Yeah. You want to dig deeper. Yeah. You want to stir up some, some yeah. thinking on that. I, I actually really appreciate that book. Again, I think it kind of goes into um, my, my millennial um, tendencies. It feeds into them. Um, some people might read that thing and be like, this is bunk, but, um, <laughs> I, I read it and, um, it was fascinating. I mean, the, what Netflix has been able to do to achieve and to scale, to pivot and to miss some very trad, like some potentially like tragic, um, market turns and, and to, to, to make the right decisions at those right moments to keep themselves from, from going under, and just completely flipping the script on the way that they do things. It was at least interesting to be like, well, it's good. I'm going to go back and look at this real quick. And what's interesting about that book is this is the president and founder of the company writing the book, but he's writing it with, I think she's a Harvard professor, research professor. So uh, so Hastings is a Netflix guy. Yeah. He's the Netflix founder. Okay. Okay. And, and um, the other author is a researcher, a research professor that studies organizational dynamics and organizational psychology. And so when she comes into the book kind of on the coattails of Reed, she's saying, look like 
everything that these guys are doing over here kind of goes against the grain of like MBA conventions that we're teaching at hmm. these elite schools, right? <laughs> like it just yeah. doesn't, it, it cuts against the grain. And, and she even talks about how she does some like some leadership executive seminars for Netflix and she had staff members. There's such an ingrained culture of providing feedback and not being afraid to do it, even if it might be perceived as hurtful, um, hmm. that she would have people come up to her afterwards and they or, you know, even or call her out during the Q&A sessions to be like, actually, you know, I'm sorry to tell you this, but I think you've got that wrong. Or do you realize that? <laughs> that what you just said there undermines the rest of your message by this. So calling her out in front of all these other people. And she had the same kind of response. She, she records the same kind of response that I said I had when my guy did that to me, right? My teammate, team member did that to me. It's like, who the heck does this person think they are to do this? Like, why are they calling me out in front of everybody else? Um, but she, she, she goes and, and examines that entire company culture internationally, right? They've got offices across the world. And, and, and then she interviews people internationally and at all levels of the organization to evaluate this culture. And um, it's just, it's just fascinating. Um, it's basically them talking about how, you know, they've, they've created this very nimble and, and talent dense organization that's allowed them to stay afloat. There's a lot of things that I, I'm not, a, I'm not an executive, right? So I'm not going to have decisions on some of these things. Um, HR policies are what they are. So I've tried to go through it and like, well, what could I use here, right? That That is going to benefit my teams um, by me pulling these pulling these things out of it. And this was the big one was, was um, speaking your mind with positive intent or criticizing mm -hmm. positive intent. And that is very much like, like, there's so many things that people want to say and you get that, 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 gnawing, I think I should say something about this, right. but there's a litany of reasons, right? There, there are a legion um, of why we decide not to. And especially yeah. in organizations, as you become, um, as you become more and more of a leader, as you get into leadership positions, you become insulated from those conversations because of those power dynamics um, that, that people are afraid to say what they think they should say because they're afraid of losing their livelihoods, quite frankly, right? right? And so as a leader, again, I, as I said before, I have to go above and beyond to reinforce. And, re and I'll tell you, I do this every meeting with my team, every huddle that I have with them. Not every huddle, but every every um, biweekly meeting that we have. Um, I, I go through this rigmarole of saying, this is your opportunity to say these things. And I rehearse this thing again. And I'll tell you, they almost never say anything to me. And I've thought about, like, I'm just going to drop this. They already know the drill. They already know what this opportunity is and it just doesn't i'm wasting valuable seconds of this meeting re rehearsing the same thing with them not ever saying anything to me so i've adjusted fire i say that every meeting still I, i've made sure to say it because i again i think it has to be said right all of the time constantly right. consistently repeated that they are welcomed and encouraged to speak up um and then I've also, for those people, I've also recognized that certain personalities just aren't going to be that way. So I've made forms that just like you could be anonymous, you can put your name on it. I don't care, but fill it out and slip it under my door. Send me an email, whatever, but speak, speak up. And when I've had a couple people kind of do that anonymously, or they're not anonymously, they come to me personally, they don't do it in public. What I've done is I've gone back into those meetings. And I learned this from the book as well. I've gone back into the meetings and said, you know what, this person came to me with this thing. And, and I asked them first, right. But, and, and I tell them why I want to do it, but I tell them, this is what they came to me about and they were right. And hmm. thank you. And I thank them in front of everyone else 
for that. Um, because again, I'm trying to reinforce this habit here. And ultimately, yeah. I want them to be able to do that with each other. But I know for a fact that if I just come in and come in and say, you know what, you guys are going to have an open and transparent, you know, communication um, pattern with with each other, no matter what, if you've got conflict, this is how you're going to handle it. But again, if I just come in and dictate it, it, it's it's insincere, right? I have to model it and I have to be willing to model it even when it means my pride being stung a bit. And yeah. so I've, I've tried to take that approach, again, the, the ways that I've mentioned that just previously uh, in my meetings and in, in their opportunities to do that just personally um, to provide that feedback. And then when it comes time for them, when they come to me, when they've got their conflict issues with each other and they come to me to ask me to handle it, right? Oftentimes we do that. It's like, we're conflict averse. I don't want to get into that with that person, you know, but you should know because you're the boss that, that <laughs> they didn't do this or they said they were going to do this, but this is what happened really. And, or can you believe that they did that? And, you know, after doing this for a while with them, my immediate response is, did you have a conversation with that person? And nine times out of 10, the answer is no. And when you try to unpack that, it's like, well, I don't want to be mean, or I don't know if it's that big of a deal. And it's like, well, well, if it's big enough that you're upset about it, you think they're doing something unsafe or they didn't do something right. Thank you for bringing it to me. Unless you are worried about you, them blowing up on you or or harming you in some way physically for for approaching them about this, I'm going to ask you to go have this conversation with them. Again, if you're absolutely sure that you can't have that with them on your own, I'm more than happy to go have the conversation with you. And I'm going to I'll be there to make sure nothing crazy happens. But I'm going to ask you to say the same thing. I'll just be there with you. And nine times out of 10, they've gone and had that conversation. And as hard as that is, um, and I've just something that I've ascribed to personally, I think I mentioned that in that same, that same um, um, LinkedIn post, in my personal life, in my, in my own personal family relationships, in my church life, because believe it or not, there's, there's conflict in churches. There's a dirty little secret I know. Um, <laughs> the, our culture in general, across all of those relationship types, work relationships, church relationships, or community, if you want to just say community relationships, family relationships, we are so conflict diverse and we're told yeah. to be so positive all the time that that it's conflict is always an emphatically viewed as a negative thing. And I'm trying to push back against that in all of those spheres of my life and say, conflict is not necessarily a negative thing. It can be a great positive um, force for change in our lives and right. for reflection in our lives if it's handled appropriately, right? And that, that takes both parties handling it appropriately, not just one, right? And so making it very clear to people that this isn't an opportunity for you to just fly off the handle and cuss someone out, that will not be tolerated, right? That positive intent and, and positive approach is absolutely emphatically necessary. And if you deviate from that, there will be consequences. Um, that being said, if you have something to say, please, please speak up and share it because I, I, you know, and I know that there's things that happen in healthcare, right? Things that get missed or somebody doesn't understand that PM process and everyone else is looking at that guy like, well, I can't believe he missed that thing. Right. right. I can't believe it. when, when, and nine times out of 10, what's mostly, what's probably going on there is they were never trained, right? They didn't know they forgot whatever. There's a, there's a myriad of reasons why that they probably slipped up there. But if we don't address that, we let it fester, right? And then we yep. think all sorts of things up in our own mind, 
we never get the chance to have that person respond back to us. And so we have the dialogue inside our own brains and it's always the worst case scenario. And you end up hating that person because of the, the conversation you had with yourself in your head, as opposed with to just going and talking to them and talking through it. So that's very long winded and I apologize for that, but, but I, I am very passionate about trying to figure out, I think it's absolutely important. Um, I think one of the benefits of my generation is you know, we, we recognize that life isn't all work. And I say that I'm not, a, I don't believe I'm a lazy millennial, but I do believe also that we spend way too much time at work to, to, to come here, wringing our hands every day, full of anxiety and stress and fear. It has negative impacts on our, on our other relationships outside of work, Absolutely. it has negative health impacts. It has all these things, right? So we just don't need it. Right, <laughs> so right. any, any, any time that I can try to try to help mitigate that for my people. Again, this goes back to the whole issues of mental health and all these other things that I, that I obviously think and worry about. Um, we just don't need that, that in our lives. We, we should be able to come to work with a sense of, even if it's the only motivator is I just come to work to, to get a paycheck, to take care of my family. That's fine. Right. Um, um, we don't need to add extra undue strain there. So trying to get people's mind shift minds shifted from conflict as a negative thing, to conflict as an opportunity for positive change. Well, and I think too, you know, everything is, um, you know, everything's connected. You can't divorce one from another because we're just in a connected world. And if you just look at technology in many ways argues against what you're trying to do, it's too easy to text. It's too easy to email. Too many people rely on that. And, you know, we've talked about this before. Tone is missed in email tone body language, and it just creates a problem that snowballs. And, you know, you're very right, I think, to bring it back to the root and connect with people where they are. I mean, I don't manage people here, but I know I do that with my kids all the time. No, we're not going to text. Let's talk. Because so many, you know, you get so many issues that develop out of something that's really simple and could be yep. quelled with just a simple conversation. But people yeah. like to email and people like to text. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that's, that's not always a good thing. It can't yeah, be, I, it's not always. Yeah, I we we use a text thread with all of my team, like it or not. I, it drives me nuts sometimes the, how often my phone's pinging because all, everybody's talking <laughs> back and forth to each other. But yeah. it turned ugly one day. It turned ugly when somebody said something some something sarcastic and it was meant yeah. to be tongue in cheek, yeah. and someone took it wrong and they blew up on each other on the on the text thread with me yeah. on it. And yeah. I was like, you, like. I think I said something like cease and desist right now. Like right. stop before you, you say right. something that I, you wish you didn't say because I can't ignore it. Yeah, <laughs> and, no, and exactly. It, and they snipped back at me even lightly. And I was like, I went talking to the person, look, man, I know your feelings are hurt, but I was trying to throw you a lifeline here. Don't, you know, don't bury yourself. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Think, think very carefully about the medium that you're using and who's, who's a part of that. Um, because it can have negative impacts, right? You can't take those things back, or at least it's very difficult to walk them back. It is. You know, it's, you think about how times have changed and, you know, Lincoln is one of my favorite presidents, if not my favorite president. And <clears throat> he would, you know, Lincoln would write things and he'd sit on them for 24 hours. And I know we don't write things anymore, but like yeah. that, and I tell that 24 hour rule, I think is great, especially as it applies to like texting, you know, just yep. sit on these things because in 24 hours, it's probably not going to be a problem and you're probably not going to send that letter or today you're probably not going to send that text or email. Yeah. 
Yeah, it, it consumes your field of vision for that time frame. And it you, does. If you step away long enough, you other things come into the periphery and then take center stage and that thing's on the periphery at that point. And it's really like, do I really care anymore? No. Right. no <laughs> I'm you not know. even going to respond now. Right. Because yeah. in the moment, your pride's probably hurt. You're like, I got to fire yeah. back. You yeah. know, they got me. I'm going to get more. So that works in college when you're hanging out with your buddies and maybe having some beers and all. But in the professional world, probably not a good one to follow. Yeah. <laughs> so you are uh, and I, you know, talking to to Jason Tate, quick moving conversation here. Jason is the director at uh, director of plan operations, excuse me, at Mountain View Regional Medical Center in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Jason, tell us a bit about your area. And you've alluded to it a little bit. What are some of the challenges you face that are unique to Mountain View due to your location? And how big is your hospital? Yeah, um, we are a 168-bed um, facility, um, do have trauma level, and do have some specialty service lines. Um, we are in community health systems, so we're um, a part of a corporate, for-profit, publicly traded health system. Okay. And we deal with all of the all of the joys and all of the pains of that that, that are entailed with that. Um, we are in Las Cruces, New Mexico, which is um, the second, actually the second largest city in New Mexico, at um, just under a hundred thousand people in the city itself. I think it's actually around like eighty five thousand, and then when you count the county, it's like one hundred and twenty thousand. So that gets you an idea yeah. as to. <laughs> the demographics and population um, issues within the state itself, right? That we are the second largest city, right. um, Albuquerque being the largest. Um, and we're three and a half hours away, eh, about three hours away um, south of Albuquerque, and actually only about 30 to 45 minutes away from El Paso, Texas. So um, okay. we, we're dealing with the same types of problems that everybody's dealing with, with trade shortages and um, technical, technical skilled people. Um, we, it feels exacerbated just because of our geographical distance from some of these other locations. Sometimes um, there is not a wide, um, there's not, there's not a wide um, swath of, of people to pull from. I think it's also exacerbated. I'm not a, I'm not a union heavy type guy. I know you're in the Northeast where I think those, that tends to be more of a common thing. They don't yes. exist really out here for the trades. And I think I, I, I have my qualms with, and, and I'm glad that I, I didn't go union for a lot of reasons. Um, again, pros and cons, but yep. one of the benefits of those of them is that they have clear apprenticeship education processes, right? That's, um, most of the time they do anyway, that mm -hmm. we just don't have around here. Right. So, um, so we're struggling through those types of things. You know, we have an electrical, uh, independent electrical contractors trade school here in town that'll, that, that churns out, um, electricians. We have an HVAC program at the community college that I sit on their advisory board for, um, so there's a couple things like that, but you know, you know, I know people that are probably listening to this know that healthcare is a bit different, right? Just taking an HVAC, an HVAC person who's done residential and light commercial work and bring them into the healthcare setting, they've got a long road to hoe. Mm -hmm. um, I had to replace that plant operator that I mentioned that finally left me, um, left the team. And I was a little worried because he ran the plant. He knew what was going on with it. Um, 
even more so than I did, even if I have the trades background, because I'm not in the plant. Right. And I, I brought on a guy with 20 plus years experience as a service refrigeration and boiler serviceman, um, tons of knowledge, right? Excellent in his field, but transitioning from the service, the installation or the service field where you're either installing equipment or you're going out when everything's hit the fan and try to replace it and get it back online to transition to preventative maintenance, heavy and optimization mm. processes, right? That and, and operator processes, that's a mind shift change. Mm. And we just don't have a, enough large commercial properties in this state to see um, the need for some of these, these schools to develop programs for um, plant operators, facility operators. So, so those become challenging. I sit on the board um, as to how, to how to address that. I'm still trying to figure that out. I, um, I sit on the board for um, advisory board for that HVAC program, and I'm constantly talking to them about a water management and engineering program that they've got that's more geared towards civil, right, um, wastewater plants and things like that. But they do have some people that go into um, industrial and plant um, water treatment, and they have some energy efficiency certificates, things like that, about how they could augment things to transition to kind of a, a facilities management, facilities operator type program, but nothing's really gained ground there because again, at a certain point, these schools have to look for, it's a throughput thing, right? Can they place students and, and they place them regionally? And again, I mean, there's two hospitals and there's three hospitals in this city now, and maybe one other building that's over, over four stories. So um, there's not a huge demand there. Therefore, you're not going to see people coming into those. So struggling through that, I sit on, I've been working for a few years now, and I continue to work on trying to get a New Mexico ASHI chapter started. Um, I've decided I'm not going to kill myself in trying to make that happen. If I don't get other people in the state who are really willing to step up and come alongside me to help make that happen, it just isn't meant to be. And right now, that's kind of where it seems like it's been. I haven't given up hope, but I've pivoted to working with an, an established IFMA chapter um, in the state um, and joining their board to try to get education in um, because they've, you know, they've had a, a kind of a vendor dominant and design dominant mm -hmm. board today, and they haven't had a lot of FM representation for a while. And so they've asked me to come on and help kind of gear things toward, um, toward facilities managers that since I am one, I have a better understanding of what we'd be looking for. And they've given me some opportunity to do some healthcare centric type stuff. And all that to say is my ultimate goal is to try to get some of this education down to the frontline staff levels. Um, yeah. You know, I do that. Yeah. And on top of that, I, I try to, I've done this myself. So I encourage my own guys. It's like, look, we've got a, tu we've got a tuition or a registration cost reimbursement program through our employment. Um, I've used it for myself personally. Y'all should do the same too. Like here are, here's a, the building, the building operator certification program that's being hosted up, up North. I think I can get it. I can help you get it paid for, but you know, it's going to be through this tuition reimbursement program. Um, I, I, you know, I, I beg borrow just short of steel wherever I can to try to get them in, in training programs because I don't have a fixed budget line for education. So it really takes trying to be creative in finding ways to pay for those things. And if people are passionate enough, I'm convinced they'll, they'll and they, they see somebody who's supporting them in it, they'll, they'll start investing in some of those things themselves too, even if it means 
right? Those tuition programs, they typically are like, we'll pay for this, but you can give us two more years, right? Right, right. Um, let's figure out how to do that. So um, those are a little bit of, of the of the struggles we have here. Excellent. Well, is, is New, Me New Mexico State, is New Mexico State in Las Cruces or is New Mexico? Yes. Yeah, New Mexico State University is here. It is an engineering and ag school. Um, and so, so the program, that HAC program is through one of New Mexico State's mm -hmm. community college arms. And it, but it's like basically on the same campus. And they've got a large plant, but it seems to be self-sufficient in a lot of okay. ways. Um, and that's been a, kind of a struggle too, is trying to get them to potentially participate in some of these things because they've got large district, you know, district distributed plants, steam plants and chilled water plants. They have a need there, but I think they've, they've been able to kind of cultivate that. They're a large enough organization that they've been able to cultivate that through their own internal programs. Nah, Being yeah. 168 beds, I, I don't have the size from a square footage standpoint to scale, to have these types of programs, right? It, it makes sense to, I'm sure, at, you know, a million square feet to have a fully staffed HVAC only shop and have ways to try to kind of train guys through those processes. I've got a six man team for all of my properties and they, because of just productivity things and, and finance things, they're all engineer ones. There's no, they're all just engineers. There's no electrician, no HVAC. So yeah. trying, and I'm still constantly working through trying to make um, get those things changed in order to, to, to start to develop a succession planning scheme or a career development planning scheme that would allow them to see some value there. And it's been a tough road to help, you know, yeah. things get, things get flatlined, kind of get flattened out and it's really hard to walk them back once they do. Right. Yeah. That's well said. Last question for Jason Tate, director of plan ops out in Las Cruces, New Mexico. What would you tell um, or what piece of advice would you give to a director or manager, anybody in a leadership level? You're very receptive to, you know, you've, it's not, you've worked hard uh, to solicit employee input and to, to have that two-way communication. Somebody who's listening to you thinking, ah, I'd like to do it. I just don't know if I can. What piece of advice would you give them to get them to take that jump and start to develop that two-way communication and be that, you know, that that take those growth opportunities to learn, what would you tell them? Hmm. Um, probably three things. One is you got to work on yourself. You know, you have to have a level of humility um, and that's easier said than done. Um, you have to be willing to hear. If you're not in a place to do that, then just don't do it. And I would also say too, like you probably don't, this is going to be, you know, probably not the best thing for me to say, but you probably don't belong in a leadership position if you're not mm -hmm. in a place to be able to hear that type of criticism mm -hmm. at this point. Mm -hmm. So that's that's number one. Um, number two is read. Um, part of being humble, I, in my opinion, is, is believing that is to be is to be teachable. Um, I actually heard that said just recently. Humility isn't isn't just hiding in a corner thinking nothing of yourself. Humility is a willingness to be taught. Um, <laughs> And, and so being an avid reader, I think is absolutely necessary. Um, and then um, finally, I would say from a very pragmatic standpoint, I'm pretty certain that your health, your HR um, offices have a lot of these programs and processes in place. They have tools in place that you can, you can use and you can tailor to fit. 
um, look at them as a partner, not as somebody who's just coming in and, and, and making your life miserable, right? The, um, <laughs> use the employee engagement tools, use the employee engagement surveys, take them seriously, um, and, and figure out how you can utilize them. If you don't know, ask where to ask your HR leadership how to start using those things um, and tell them that that's your desire. I'm, I'm fairly certain that if you give your HR leadership uh, a positive direction for them to work with, as opposed to something that they're constantly having to look at from a negative line, not every director is jumping at the bit, right? Chomping at the bit to come to HR to ask them to please help them do these things. <laughs> so when people do, yeah, when people do, you see their eyes light up. They're like, fantastic. Yeah. I get to help somebody who really wants to do this. So, so take advantage of those things. You've got kudos programs. You've got feedback programs. Utilize, you've got, you've got annual review processes. Don't look at those things as a dirge, as something that you just have to do in order to meet a quota or else you're going to get in trouble utilize them to the fullest extent possible. And I get, I, I'm, I'm 99.5% certain that, that you will see a change in, in the culture within your team because your team will start to see that you take them seriously. Oh. Great advice. Great advice. So Jason Tate, thank you for your time. Jason's director of plan operations, Mountain View Regional Medical Center, Las Cruces, New Mexico. Jason, thanks for appearing on the show today. I really appreciate it. It was a great discussion. I hope, I'm sure you've helped some folks out and I appreciate it. Uh, that was a good, that was a good discussion. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for sharing my, my story a little bit and um, hopefully we can, we can chat again sometimes. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is Peter Martin for the High Reliability Podcast. As always, I appreciate you listening to the podcast, and we will be back again soon with another episode. Have a great day. Thanks again.